Well, hello, Kirby's Mary Scott Hunter here, along with my co-hosts, Rachel Briers and Liz Bashirs. And before we get into our interview, let me say that Rachel and Liz and I are so super grateful to our Patreon subscribers. We just could not be more grateful for those of you who choose to fund our show, especially now in the times of pandemic and COVID-19 when money is tight. And as you all know, our mission is to model and create an authentic community where we can laugh, grow, find tools and inspiration to take risks, and just be the very best version of ourselves. So we thank you for supporting the show and ask for you to continue to support the show. And if you aren't supporting the show on Patreon, please can consider that. We have chosen our second quarter book, Becoming Mrs. Lewis by Patty Callahan. Patty's a New York Times bestseller who also lives in Birmingham, Alabama. So it's awesome that we're going to get to feature a Alabama author in our in our book club show this quarter. And this is a great book. Becoming Mrs. Lewis is a love story. It's about the love story of Joy Davidman and C.S. Lewis, who authored the Chronicles of Narnia and Screwtape Letters and all those great books. You can get Patty's book by clicking through our show notes, or you can buy it from your local bookseller because they need your help too. Patty also has a podcast behind the scenes of Becoming Mrs. Lewis. I'm listening to it now and it's really great. So go out and get your book. Patty Callahan is the author and the book is Becoming Mrs. Lewis. So Today, we are talking about American suffrage. Because almost exactly 100 years ago, the U.S. Congress passed the 19th Amendment, giving women the right to vote. Now, remember, everybody, take yourself back to those high school civics lessons and history lessons. Remember that constitutional amendments have to be ratified by the states. It's a process. So even though the federal government might pass the amendment, it then has to go out to the states to be ratified. So it was quite a lengthy process. And that all started 100 years ago and concluded about 100 years ago. Uh, But today we are going to talk about the history of that process. And it's a fun one. And it's entirely appropriate because, as you know, everyone knows right now we are in the middle of an election season. So it's a good time to talk about this subject because American suffrage was our nation's largest expansion of democracy ever. Uh, And it 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 was just a great thing that ought to be punctuated. And welcome, Emily, to talk with us about that. We're so glad you're with us. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Um, I do want to say that suffrage means the right to vote. Some of my high school students think suffrage means suffering. So I like to make that distinction <laughs> that suffrage is the right to vote. So, sometimes and there's some suffering along with suffrage. <laughs> <laughs> so tell us about you. Oh, well, I teach American government and state and local government as, as a part-time lecturer at the University of Alabama at Huntsville. Um, I also teach American government at Jemison College Academy um, and also for the Alabama Department of Education's virtual learning program known as ACCESS. Um, and I have also taught as an adjunct at Calhoun Community College. Um, my background really is in journalism. Um, I first worked as a reporter uh, for a number of years while earning my master's in political science and public administration. Um, but I began teaching about 10 years ago, American government, and found that I really love it. And I see this course really that I teach as a life skill uh, because no matter what major my students will be, 
uh, pursuing, I hope that they all will be voters and will make educated decisions at the ballot box. So, um, Emily, I know you're passionate about voting. I've heard you speak. So tell us about you know, how did you get that passion for voting? Did that come in your did that come in your days of reporting? Probably came in my days of reporting. I would uh, report on an issue and I would go out and I would talk to voters about it. And some had no idea what was going on um, or sometimes. um, um Well, a big thing to me um, that I think is very telling um, is that particularly in the 2016 presidential election, we had about 58 percent of voters casting their ballots. So a little more than half. Um, It's a little shocking to me that about 42 percent did not uh, decide to vote. Go down to local elections. You only see about. 20 to 30 percent. Even in the senatorial election between Roy Moore and Doug Jones, the Secretary of State's office was uh, reporting somewhere in the 30s uh, of voters. So people have this right. I mean, I have heard it said that that we will cross oceans and put lives on the line to help other countries win the right to vote, but yet we won't walk across the street to cast our own ballots. Um, I think this is a right and a privilege that we have in this country, and I think it's one that we need to exercise. Um, You can't complain about what's going on in our government if you haven't been actively a part of it. Well, and the early suffragists, those early Mm -hmm. American suffragists really understood that. Uh, where, Where did it all, where did it start? Well, a lot of the history books point to the Seneca Falls Convention in 1848, Um, but it was the idea was around much earlier, um, even in the beginning of our country. I've, I've uh, noted um, Abigail Adams, who was the wife of founding father John Adams, um, during the discussion over the Declaration of Independence in 1776, she wrote a letter to her husband asking him to remember the ladies and be more favorable to them. Remember um, the ladies. She yes. does remember not get enough ladies. props. I love Abigail Adams. Absolutely. She does not. <laughs> so it, it, you know, it was around for a while. Um, and um, but really, it was that 1848 convention that sort of the ball got rolling. Um, but um, the idea was around much earlier. So, so what happened when, at the convention? Well, the convention actually started. I wanted. To, I want to backtrack a little bit before um, Susan B. Anthony is sort of our token, um, his person that we point to as sort of starting the suffrage movement. But she actually was not at that Seneca Falls convention. Um, she um, uh, was in, want, wanting to wanted to support women's suffrage, but she also was involved with um, the abolitionist movement as well. Um, and there were several women that were involved in the abolitionist movement trying to end slavery um, that sort of took up women's suffrage as, as um, a part of that. But basically what happened was they were um, this woman named um, Elizabeth Cady Stanton. Uh, she and her husband went to attend the World Um, anti-slavery society movement in London around 1840. And there was another American woman there named Lucretius Mott. And anyway, they went to attend this convention and they were denied access because they were women. And that did not sit well with them. So when they came home to the United States, they said, we need to organize a convention for women. And so they got to work and that's what resulted in that Seneca Falls Convention in 1848. And during that convention, they came up with a declaration of sentiments that was fashioned very similar to our Declaration of Independence, where they said that all men and women should be treated equal, 
rather than all men should be treated equal. So that's how it sort of all started. And, and after that um, convention, um, Susan B. Anthony, I think her sister um, and mother were at there, but she met Elizabeth Cady Stanton, and Susan B. Anthony and Elizabeth Stanton really became partners in crime, uh, pursuing it very passionately for the, for the rest of their lives. Bring some of these characters to life for us. What, what were they personally like? What were some of their characteristics? Well, Susan B. Anthony, she was actually, she was a Quaker. Many of them were Quakers. Um, she was a school teacher. Uh, she was very independent. She believed that men and women should be able to work and study as equals. Um, a lot of these women also were not only involved in the anti-slavery efforts, they also were involved in the um, in the temperance movement. They wanted to uh, uh, abolish alcohol, which is which turned out to be one of the stumbling blocks to the whole thing because uh, some of the... Um, uh, those that were op- opposed to the uh, movement feared that if women got the right to vote, that they would call for prohibition, <laughs> which that was a big crying <laughs> ball call. Well, that would be a stumbling Oof. ball. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> some of them were very militant. Um, Alice Paul, she was uh, she came around in the nineteen early 1900s. She was very militant in her efforts. Um, some were um, wanting to um, take a state-by-state state approach. Um, others, like Susan B. Anthony and um, uh, Elizabeth Stanton, were going straight to Congress because they were wanting it on a national level. So um, there are a lot of different... They say that politics makes for strange bedfellows, and you saw a whole colorful cast of characters. Um, Frederick Douglass was also involved in the movement. He and um, Susan B. Anthony were good friends, um, both trying to end slavery. Um, They did have a disagreement after the Civil War over the Battle of the 15th Amendment, which would have given men the right to vote, but not women. Because Susan B. Anthony did not agree with that. She wanted men and women to be given that right and Frederick Douglass said, let the African-American male go first, and then we can work on women. And, and that sort of caused a split in that time. There, I mean, there are a lot of this kind of intertwining between suffrage and abolition. You, mm-hmm. Like you just mentioned, you see so many of those characters pop up on both issues. Um, why was universal voting so controversial to begin with, it, se- it just seems like it, it follows logically to us now in the 21st century. But in the 19th century, in the, in the 18th and 19th centuries, you know, toward the beginning of our, our nation, it, just, it wasn't taken for granted like it is now. So can you talk to us about why those issues of abolition and uh, suffrage are so intertwined and also just why why the, we didn't take it for granted back then? Well, and and... I'm going to take you back to the history um, a little bit of suffrage. Um, In the beginning of our country, really the only people who could vote were the wealthy uh, white landowners. It was the elite of the society. And our founding fathers, to be honest with you, didn't necessarily trust the masses. Um, That's why at that particular time, we could only vote for our House of Representatives. Uh, Senators were chosen by state legislatures, the president by the Electoral College, and our judicial branch was chosen by the president and confirmed by the Senate. Um, When Andrew Jackson came on the scene, he sought universal white male suffrage to try and remove some of those property restrictions so that all white men could vote. Um, And that helped propel him to uh, win his presidency. Um, And then... Um, you had African-American males and women are trying to get the right to vote, and that 
for me, for African-American males, it didn't necessarily come till after the Civil War, obviously, because that's when we removed slavery. Um, and interestingly, right after the Civil War, that's when we had our highest voter turnout. Um, when um, we were able to have all men, regardless of race, the ability to vote. Uh, but then after that, some states started instituting uh, laws saying, oh, you can vote, but you have to pass a literacy test or you have to meet a grandfather clause or you have to pay a poll tax or whatever. Um, so I, I think that women and uh, felt, um, I guess, misery loves company. And I think women um, felt a connection with slaves that um, they weren't able to vote and, and these persons were not able to vote. And so they sort of joined forces uh, to try and get the right to vote, uh, to have more of a voice in what was happening in this country. I said it was a long-winded answer, but I hope that was helpful. No, that was helpful. It was <laughs> so I didn't realize that Elizabeth Cady Stanton was a Quaker. Do you think there was there's some, and I know that there are a lot of very she, religious abolitionists she was, too. Now, I don't know if she was this Quaker. I know that she was from New York and her and her husband were very involved in the movement. Which Many one was it you said? Quakers, though. Okay. Lucretia Mott was a Quaker. Okay. Um, I know that. Um, another one that joined was Sojourner Truth. She was born into slavery. Um, and she worked a lot with Elizabeth Stanton and Susan B. Anthony um, to try and get universal suffrage. Uh, Lucy Stone was another. She was an abolitionist. Her and her husband uh, sort of sided with Frederick Douglass, saying, uh, let's give African-American males the right to vote first, and then we'll work on women. Um, so that's some of the players in there. So was the Civil War sort of a put it all in a holding pattern? I mean, yes. OK, it, it sort of put everything on hold um, and they were all together, really. And then after the Civil War, we saw two camps form. And a lot of this was over the discussion of the 15th Amendment. There were those that said, let's work on getting men the right to vote. And you had Susan B. Anthony and Elizabeth Stanton saying, no, this is our time to give men and women the right to vote. And so we had a split in the movement. It really wasn't until later um, in, around the 1890s that the two groups finally came back together. So the movement splits and on the women's side, they came up with two strategies, right, to get to win the right to the two strategies emerged, right? Is that well, we had yeah, we had um, Elizabeth Stanton and Susan B. Anthony were wanting that constitutional amendment. They were going they were going after Congress. Um, uh, Lucy Stone. Um, she, well, two organizations formed. Um, one was the American Women's Suffrage Movement, and the, I think the other was the National. I have to look at my notes on that. But there were two move. There was the American Women's Suffrage Association and the National Women's Suffrage Association. And the National Women's Suffrage Association, which was um, formed by um, Anthony and Stanton, they wanted, they were going after Congress and focusing on Congress to get that constitutional amendment. The, the American women became the 19th Amendment. Yes. Okay. And the American Women's Suffrage Association was a more conservative group, and that was headed by Lucy Stone and her husband, Henry Blackwell, and they focused on a state-by-state -state approach. Um, so the two strategies were the state-by-state -state approach right. was one strategy, and the second strategy was to get the constitutional amendment. Right. Because one of the reserved powers of the states 
is the ability to conduct elections. States have their own voter I'm (laughs) tongue-tied. One of the reserved powers of the states is the ability to conduct elections. States have the power to decide who votes. They have their own voter registration requirements. Uh, They choose the time, manner, and places of holding elections. and so there were some that said, hey, we're not going to get it on the national level, so let's see if we can get it on the states. It really wasn't until the two groups came back together in 1890 when they formed the National Women's Suffrage Association, um, and it was headed by Carrie Chapman Catt, um, who said, hey, she proposed this idea of what's known as the winning plan. She knew that to get... Uh, an amendment passed, it would require three-fourths of the states. And so she said, let's get three-fourths of the states to allow women the right to vote. And that way, if Congress passes it, it's a done deal. We've got it. So they kind of converged the two strategies. Yes. I see. Okay. And that that became the winning, quote-unquote, winning plan. Yes. And let me see if if my high school history is correct. Was it Wyoming? Yes, went first, Wyoming okay. first state. Maps for Mary Scott. Good, good memory. <laughs> <laughs> well, it seems like there'd be a lot of roadblocks to get that many states on board. So what, what were some of those roadblocks and how did it all come together? Well, there, were, um, there was an anti-suffrage society that did form um, that um, said that if women got the right to vote, that it would harm their marriages, that it would harm their families. Um, some feared that women would call for equal working <laughs> conditions or they would call for prohibition. Heaven oh, God. <laughs> equal working conditions. How dare they? How dare they? Well, they were right about prohibition, though, weren't they? Uh, that, was, that was another women-led movement. And I yes. think, and I think they might have been a little bit right about problems in the marriage. I mean, <laughs> Mary Scott, when she said that, I just pictured Mary Scott in like a like old timey dress, and oh, yeah? Don, her husband, telling her, "No, I don't think you should vote," and her just like whapping him over the hand back. Right after I I tied myself to a I don't know a, a carriage and rolled around and went on a hunger strike. I I this is important stuff. I mean, <laughs> this is important stuff. You were born in the wrong time, Mary Scott. <laughs> I, I I I would have fought for the right to vote. I, I hope I would have. Anyway, I'm sorry I interrupted yeah, your no, no, your, no, your discussion fine. of the roadblocks to the 19th. Well, that's you know I'm pretty much it. There was a um, well another roadblock too was World War One. After the Civil War, that sort of halted things. And then when World War One came around, um, there were many people who thought this is just not the right time. Uh, war is life and death, and the women's right to vote did not seem as important at the time. Well, I, I suppose I can understand that, but <laughs> like anything important. There's always going to be a reason not to do the thing that you need to do. Uh, I mean, obviously, wars get in the way of a lot of things. Pandemics get in the way of a lot of things. Things happen. But I I think probably the ones that were opposed to suffrage used whatever was going on to their advantage to try to stop that movement. Um, Mm -hmm. And what I what I find interesting about it, and I mean, you tell me what you think. I, I I think it was absolutely inevitable. I think that people want to have a say in their future. 
Mm-hmm. And it was it, it it was a movement that ha- maybe had its beginnings with Abigail Adams. Who I mean, I think it probably. I mean, I think there it probably even started before that. Who knows where the germ of that movement came from? But I don't see how that movement could have ever been quashed. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and one thing I think is interesting is you know Susan B. Anthony she she was very involved, but she never got to cast her ballot. Hmm. Um, she passed in 1906. Uh, before that amendment was passed in 1920. But wait, didn't she try? She did. Okay. She did try right after um, the Civil War. One of the amendments, there are three amendments that were passed after the Civil War, the 13th, 14th, and 15th. And the 14th uh, grants equal protection under the law. So she took that ball and ran with it and said, you know what? Equal protection under the law. Uh, woman, I remember know. this case, I, and she tried. <laughs> she did. She tried to vote in um, the 1872 election for Ulysses S. Grant, and uh, she was arrested and fined $100, which is about $2,000 today. And uh, she refused to pay and lectured the court about her denial of the civil rights. Um, Good for her. Yes. <laughs> and she continued to try and vote. But um, in 1875, the Supreme Court actually ruled in a Missouri case that the 14th Amendment did not grant women the right to vote. So that sort of squashed her movement. But she did carry the 14th Amendment as a rallying cry for several years trying to uh, vote in elections. Well, and, you know, equal protection evidently wasn't equal. Yes, I mean, terrible thing. And and that and that really, you know, there's there's a lot to be learned from history. But um, I remember studying that case. We had that case in law school in our constitutional history class or constitutions class. And oh, my goodness, that that's a blow. Mm -hmm. She should have been allowed to vote under that body of law. She should have been. Uh, And they had to and the Supreme Court had to turn themselves inside out to deny that vote to her. Mm. Yes. And I did want to add when we were talking about the different strategies, I talked about the strategies after the Civil War, right around the um, the turn of the century during World War One. Um, there was another leader, um, Alice Paul, who I mentioned earlier, and she was very, very militant in her efforts. Um, and um, it did cause a little bit of a split. There were some that did not support her because she um, she held many protests picketing in front of the white house. She went on hunger strike. She was arrested. She planned a suffrage walk during the same time as president Woodrow Wilson's inauguration walk. And, um, so that was, um, I did want to add that, that during that time, there was some people that said that didn't necessarily agree with her tactics. They agreed with her purpose, but not her tactics. And there was some, um, disagreement as to how best to approach that, whether civilly or militantly. Um, but um, I also thought I would throw that in there because Alice Paul was another one who uh, is in our history books for trying to get the right to vote as well. I've always thought of Alice Paul as sort of like the Apostle Paul. <laughs> <laughs> Not very likable, but wow. extremely effective, you know, I mean, <laughs> She, she also compared Wilson to Kaiser during World War I. I yes, <laughs> called him the Kaiser. Wow. Mary Scott just slinging darts. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's how I think. I mean, just like the Apostle Paul, you, you need people that are absolutely, I mean, they're not very pleasant people, but she did 
you know, she did, she did, she did force the issue. So, you know, it, it's effective. Yeah. Um, so, okay. Susan B. Anthony and Carrie Chapman cat came to Huntsville. Yes, they did. They so, actually came to Huntsville. I, I, and I love the fact that Alabama had a part in the suffrage movement. So tell us about that. Well, there were um, there were two women um, that were the daughter, I think the daughter and sister of former Governor Reuben Chapman. Um, it was Ellie Humes and Alberta Chapman Taylor. Um, and Miss Taylor had spent some time in Colorado and was very impressed with the suffrage movement there and, and the successes there. So um, when she was here in Huntsville, she wanted to bring Susan B. Anthony and Carrie Chapman Cat to Huntsville to speak, um, and they did. They uh, the two came. Um, they were actually on their way to a convention in Atlanta, so they made a stop in in Huntsville, and they spoke um, in the um, in City Hall. Uh, Miss Anthony was seventy five at the time. Um, she came. She spoke first, and she sort of gave the history of the movement. She was like a school teacher. They list everybody listened to her and was very impressed. Uh, and then Miss Chapman, who was thirty five at the time, Chapman Cat, she spoke for seventy five minutes, um, and um, was very impressive. Uh, she drew rounds of applause during her talk, um, and after both of them spoke, um, there was an invitation to um, join the women's suffrage movement. Um, I think that those that were um, supporters um, of this event were really hoping to make a mark because the 1901 Alabama Constitution was coming up. Um, Unfortunately, they were disappointed that women's suffrage was not a part of that 1901 Constitution, but they were really trying to lay the seeds uh, for women's suffrage uh, by having these two women come speak. They were very impressed, impressive to the Huntsville um, citizens here. Well, I am very glad they came and their um, their their story did not end for Alabama until the 19th was passed in 1953. Whoa. <laughs> <laughs> Ouch. You know, they say, yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean, the 19th was already in effect because three quarters of the states had passed it. Tennessee was the, I, I think, the, the state that finally, you know, tipped it to, to passage, I think. And then, mm-hmm. yeah, it was so, and, yeah, and Alabama came along 30 years later. And, and there were, you know, uh, we weren't, we were right. Yeah, we weren't. <laughs> hey, but, you know, they say, thank God for Mississippi because Mississippi passed theirs in 1984. Oh, whoa. <laughs> wow. Speaking of Tennessee, um, a couple of summers ago, I was in Knoxville for a for work, and they have this fantastic memorial in um, Market Square, right in the middle of downtown Knoxville. And it's real like I, I got really emotional looking at it and reading the inscriptions on some of it. Uh, there was one in particular that I really loved and drove me to tears. Do you mind if I read it real quick? No, please. please. Let's do. Right. It said, bullets and ballots are not companions, but ballots in the hands of people are supposed to be a substitute for bullets in the hands of hired agents. Thanks be to God that in giving woman the crown of motherhood, he made her the giver, not the taker of life. Woman has no greater claim to the rights of the ballot than that she is the producer, not a destroyer of life. Wow. Wow. That's nice. I love it. I love it. It And it, um, the, the memorial features, uh, it's a statue of three women that were 
Tennessee suffragettes, suffragists, suffragettes. Um, uh, and two of them were named Elizabeth. And then the other was Anne. So uh, Elizabeth Avery Bennett, it looks like Lizzie Crozier French and Anne Dallas Dudley. It's a really beautiful monument. If you ever find yourself in Knoxville, go check it out. Well, Emily, we want to thank you. Bell Curve could not let this year go by without commemorating the 100th year of American suffrage. It's a really big deal. And we appreciate you helping us and helping our understand our audience to understand it better. Thank you. So Curvies want to reach out to you if they want to reach out to you, Emily, what's the best way to do that? Well, um, questions. my um, email is um, er, erp0002 at uah.edu if you want to reach out to me through my UAH email. And we'll stick that in the show notes for anybody that has questions for Emily. She's on the, she's on the grand tour of giving, um, to giving the American suffrage speech. I've heard it before and it's fantastic. It's, um, if you actually see it in person, she has this fantastic PowerPoint presentation with all these great images, um, of, of women who worked hard and sacrificed a lot to get women the right to vote. Really important really important. So connect with Bell Curve on Facebook or Twitter uh, at Bell Curve Pod. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you download your podcast. Leave us a review. It helps us. And don't forget to order your copy of Becoming Mrs. Lewis, our second quarter book club book, which I think we're going to take up in the June time frame. See you soon.